From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Hello and welcome to day two of Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. This is the Sunday edition, of course, even though some of my guests, it's still Saturday where we will be speaking to our guests from around the world on TNT. And if you tuned in yesterday, you would have seen a terrific program that we had for you, Brad Olson, discussing his trip to Laos, talking about the Plain of Jars, and of course, his new research for his new book, Antarctica. Then we went into uh, Dr. Josiah Baker, talking about his work with Ulf Sandstrom in the book, The Optimist, one of the most magnificent books that I've had the privilege of reading in recent times, a self-help book with a very interesting perspective or perspectives. And then in the final hour, we spoke to lawyer Rich Pfeiffer, who was the lawyer that got Leslie Van Houten out of jail after 50 years her role in the Charles Manson murders. And of course, there's a lot more nuance in that story. If you're sitting there going, why would anyone want to get a convicted killer out of prison? Well, that's why we spoke to Rich yesterday. Well, guess what? Today, not only is it 110 degrees in the shade here, Fahrenheit, where I'm broadcasting from, but it is going to be a bumper edition once again on the show. In my first interview that I'm going to have in a moment will be with Reb Bradley, and I'll introduce him momentarily. But in the second hour, we're going to have Matthew Camenzulli, a Liberal Party reformer focusing on political corruption, who was expelled from the Liberal Party for taking the former Prime Minister to court. And in the final hour, Kim Statton, who is the film director of the Julian Assange film, The Trust Fall, will be joining me for his very important film. He had a screening last night. We'll talk about that. But also in his work as the uh, hearings will be going ahead on the 20th and 21st of February in London. And the timing of that interview could not be better. Now, today, the first hour is very, very important because it's about the most important thing for all of us and that is our relationships, our loving relationships. And my first guest, Reb Bradley, is a parenting specialist as well. As a counsellor, he has diagnosed and helped thousands of parents transform the lives of those of their children. He had a book, Child Training Tips, has been a runaway bestseller. And in 1998, he took note of the disintegrating moral fibre of America and decided to apply his diagnostic skills to find a cure to what ails our society. And in that book, Born a Liberal Raised Right, How to Rescue America from Moral Decline, One Family at a Time, he reveals how American society has grown out of control. And we're going to discuss that, but we're also going to discuss his brand new book called, wait for it, it turns out women aren't crazy. Understanding the mind of a woman, well, through a man's eyes. Now, that is a real challenge, and I'm sure there'll be people out there jumping up and down, but this is what it's all about. Now, just to give you some perspective, just to explain where I'm coming from here, I was very much against the lone gun theory on JFK's assassination, and of course, I've explored and interviewed many people in that space. And then we had Fred Litwin on the show last weekend, who was also a conspiracist that turned the other way and said that Oswald did was a lone gunman assassin. It was all him. And that's the point. Even if we don't agree, there is nothing better than getting a fresh perspective. And of course, we'll always challenge the status quo here on TNT Radio. So have I got you riled up? Have I got you excited? I don't know. But what we're going to do is introduce my first guest now, Reb Bradley. Reb, welcome to Weekends. Well, thank you. It's exciting to be here. 
look, I really appreciate it. And I, I just have a, a wonderful feeling whenever there's somebody that can give their life's work to detailed research instruction and, and, and be able to write a book or make a film, it's just a wonderful thing that anyone can do if that's what they want to do. But it, it's something that uh, for a writer, I would assume can be a little bit lonely at times uh, because there is deadlines to meet, word limits, um, chapters to write, rewrite, write empty pages, etc. But once it, once you get started, like anything, once you gain that uh, experience and understanding and know-how, it must be one of the most liberating and fulfilling uh, quests that anyone could go on. Can you tell me a little bit how you decided to become a writer in the first place and how you caught the writing? Bug? Well, I was a pastor for years, and sometimes I was just uh, disappointed that people were not getting the help that they needed. And I was uh, intensely committed to reaching lots of people. It just seemed the most efficient way to do it. And so I began writing. I don't know, maybe my first book was 35, 40 years ago. Started off as a little booklet, and then the book that eventually became a bestseller was um, in 1995, I think. But it was just written for me. I'm a spectrum autism, and I have, I, I, I socially, I don't always know how to connect with people. But as far as my brain, my brain works very analytically. So I'm constantly diagnosing and analyzing things. And so parenting, my, my parenting book, for example, which we're not talking about this hour, but that book is a diagnostic manual. It's just symptomless, behaviorless. So when you're saying these things, what does that mean? When your child is doing these things, what does that mean? In other words, you, you can diagnose your, your situation. And the same thing with being a husband. My wife and I got married 45 plus years ago, and I could not uh, understand why she did what she did. I just thought she was crazy. And I, she would explain, she was patient. And so I just began taking notes, and I had a lot to learn. It, well, there you go. I mean, 45 years in the making, Reb, it's, uh, it's a big deal. And the fact that it's taken 45 years to put this story together is a wonderful testimony to the fact that you never give up and you are always working on your marriage. Now, I just want to um, inject perhaps a little bit of humour and, again, probably um, upset a few people at the same time, but probably around 45 years ago, one of my favourite comedians, the late Alan King, would tell a joke uh, that uh, is on available on YouTube, and it was called Survived by His Wife. And he starts it out and he explains that even back then he was um, taken to task over the opening line. And it was, and everyone, this is just a joke and it's almost 50 years old now, but he said, the reason that women live longer than men is that they don't have to live with women. And that was the joke. And he said he got a bad reception for it at the time. And he goes on to tell the story using newspaper clippings of obituaries of men who are getting increasingly older and older. And the bottom line, of course, is survived by his wife. And of course, this is a reaction of men to get gain humour and whatever it is. But I thought it was a, a funny way to sort of introduce where we're going here because now, 45 years later, we live in a very, very different world. And if I fast forward, perhaps it was probably 15, almost 20 years ago now, I was working in, in real estate. And at Christmas time, we were uh, taken out for lunch in our little office by one of the solicitors that uh, we would refer people to because he was a brilliant conveyancer that was very friendly, very affordable, and uh, explained a lot, especially to first home buyers about how the system worked. And at, at lunch, I asked him, I said, what else do you do in your business besides conveyancing? Because you're also a solicitor. And he said, I deal a lot in divorce, sadly. 
And I said, is there any sort of common um, interest here or, or or what you're seeing? He said, yes, there is. He said, typically what I see in my uh, in my office is that I get a very young or, or youngish 20-something pretty young lady coming in with a big hulking male and uh, it's divorce. And basically it works the same way. He said that... Um, that she comes in, meets this man, this caveman, as she as as he put it, wants to change him, can't change him, and they get divorced. And I said, "Wow, that's uh, that's quite common. Is it is it is it that regular?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "Well, what happens to this um, pretty young lady in her now probably thirty something like that?" She says, "Well, a couple of years later, more or less, she marries the accountant." And I thought, how can that be such a very oversimplistic way? He said, that's what I see over and over again. Reb, does that ring true in, in the relationships perhaps that you've been over the years as a counsellor that, that you can put a finger on certain things? Or is this a, a, an oversimplification of what, what you see or have seen? Well, you, you are describing how it can happen. But ultimately, I have uh, I've not necessarily, how can I say, I've not necessarily found that a woman who divorces uh will marry an account or marry she might marry a more reasonable mellow fellow but the bottom line is this in fact i'll back up a bit 45 years marriage taking notes figuring it out slowly but surely um and then about 15 years ago i retired from pastoring and i was just uh, found myself with an article called reconciling with your wife so i posted it online i created a website just for it and i found i from around the world in Australia as well, as well, I got 500 hits a day from men who who searched, Googled the question, reconciling with my wife. My article came up. And so I was helping multitudes of men every day whose wives had left them. Now, in the U.S., the statistics are that 70% of all divorces are pursued by the wife. And ultimately, what happens is a woman marries and she decides she's in love and can marry when she concludes her heart is safe with this man because a man is paying attention. He's listening to her. He's reaching out to her. She feels her heart is safe. And she says, I'll entrust my heart to this one. Well, after they get married, he says, and he says, I do. Then he says, I'm done. All that security and comfort and love and care, that was, he was like he was fishing. And that was just bait on the hook. He figures, I've got her. Why keep doing that stuff? But all that romance, all that interest made her feel secure and happy and like she would be loved the rest of her life. And so um, ultimately, women feel neglected and over, overlooked and, and rejected because a man does not pay attention like he did. And so if we men could learn the art of a woman's heart, how it works, it changes how she relates. So women respond so differently. I mean, my, my wife and I used to do a seminar called Happiness in Marriage. And we're happy in our marriage, but in the last 15 years, we'd be, we've surpassed happiness and we live in bliss. I mean, we're both 70 years old. We couldn't be more delighted. We just want to be with each other. We want to talk. We want to hear. We probably spend an hour or two, maybe three hours sometimes in conversation every day and you wouldn't have told me 20 years ago that that would happen. I had no idea that was in my future. And so what I tried to do is pass on to men many of the things I had to learn in order to enjoy a blissful marriage. 
It's fascinating, isn't it? Because there's no simple way of uh, being able to um, explain that this is something that you had to learn, you you had to put a life's work into it. But anything that's worth something is worth putting the effort into. And maybe people think that something can be taken for granted, that perhaps unconditional love is something that uh, that can just move on and on and on. But it's not it's not as simple as that, is it? Because what you're talking about is, is the rewarding uh, relationship that you have on a daily basis, that you can uh, be in the company of your wife and have hours long conversations every single day about important things that both of you connect with. That's something that, you know, might be natural that some people are great communicators, but it's also something that you have to work on. What I wanted to ask you was therefore, Reb, do you think that part of this is the fact that there is the effort and there is the time and the fact that, pack, that, if, that you, the way you were in your 20s and 30s and 40s is different to the way you were in your 50s and 60s, for example? Is, is maturity part of this process or or, um, or, or let's say, because if someone gets married late, for example, say someone's 50 and they've never been married before and they get married, is it a different perhaps relationship if they were to get married at 25 and have to work on it? Or is this part of the process? Well, we're all young and clueless and have a lot to learn. Uh, I, uh, When I first got married, I was we were 25 years old. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, and 25 years old. And I, within months, I was thinking, I don't like being married to her. God, if you want to take her home, that'd be good. She'd be in a better place, you know. I mean, I wasn't really praying for her death, but I was saying I wouldn't mind it. I thought, let me just marry a normal woman. And I had no idea that she was a normal woman, that men and women are that different. So fortunately, my wife was helping me. And so... But here's the problem I find. I, I deal with, with men in counseling. I sometimes 30, 40 years married, 50 years married. Some of them I've, I've had that long. And they're just surviving their, their wife. They've learned to endure her and get along if they've lasted that long. But that's still just surviving. And that's still enduring. But in, in the Bible, it says, uh, live with your wife in an understanding way. And that takes work. It takes, in other words, we're never told to breathe. We do that naturally. So if you're told, live with your wife in an understanding way, that means that you, that's not natural. And so it takes effort. It takes listening. And that's why I wrote the book. It's, it's only 100 pages. I, I, it was 200 pages, and I cut 100 pages out just to make it simpler so that guys will actually read it. And so far, who has ever read it, it's only been out a short time is tremendously helped. That's my wish that that all men could stop trying to survive their wife. Mm. And it, maybe I could put it this way, that a woman, here's what happens in a typical marriage. A woman shares her heart with her husband and he says, why is she attacking me? She's complaining about finances. She's complaining about the house. She's complaining about relationships. Uh, but she's saying, I'm not attacking you. I'm sharing my heart. I'm sharing you with my fears and my concerns. It took me quite a bit of time in our marriage to discipline myself, to keep my mouth shut, and ask myself, what is she afraid of? Is, she, is it finances? And then respond with empathy to her fear. And it put her at ease, and we were able to have a dialogue. But what happens is the average man just feels attacked, and he just has to learn how to survive his wife, who is an opponent. But what if she's not an opponent? What if she's there looking to you for security, looking to you for safety, looking to you for understanding, and she's not really attacking you? And that takes work on a man's part 
to discipline himself and listen to the, the fear that she might be experiencing. How beautifully put, Reb, and I think the key word in all of that is the ability to listen and to realise that the attack is not an attack, but a different way to draw down some perspective there. Now, we're going to have to take a break, and uh, we're going to obviously look further into the book, and then we're going to switch in a little bit later onto a completely different perspective of Reb's specialty when it comes to parenting. But before we go to the break, I just want to uh, read you this message that last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London, lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down, but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, author, counsellor, retired pastor, Reb Bradley. And we're talking about his brand new book, It Turns Out Women Aren't Crazy. And Reb, if we get a little bit further and deeper, I think the, um, I guess the, 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 the toughest question in all of this is intimacy and the understanding of that communication. Why do men and women uh, seem to find that such a difficult part? What, where it gets lost in a marriage that the intimacy perhaps dries up or uh, it gets lost in the communication? And perhaps this is either the start or the finish of, of, of a problem. Is it kind of, um, is it kind of uh, mixing apples and oranges here in this intimacy department? How do you best explain it for, for people? Well, women are designed very differently than men. And to a woman, intimacy is has nothing to do with sex or little to do with sex. It's about the ability to be vulnerable with someone. She's intimate with her girlfriends because they can be transparent with each other. Uh, they can look at each other and feel badly for each other. Uh, for us as men, uh, we tend to lean to intimacy is more sexual. And so there's a conflict early on in marriage. You know, a woman wants time to he to share her heart and be heard and felt for, whereas a man thinks intimacy is tends to be physical. And so that's part of the core difference in design. 
It's uh, it is obviously difficult, isn't it, when that situation comes? And I guess it's different again in different periods of people's lives. Again, getting married in your twenties is different to getting married in your forties, uh, and, and certainly getting married again. Some people get married in their fifties, sixties, seventies. Of course, second marriages, uh, divorces, uh, widows, etc. There are many different aspects there. Um, let me ask you, Reb, in in your role as a counsellor, you mentioned that you you you're counselling men who have been married for forty and fifty years. That's a very very different scenario um, uh, for for those that are getting, you know, sort of three, four years into a marriage and, and marriage is breaking up very soon. Are the problems the same uh, depending on the length of a marriage? Uh, they just been living with them for longer or, or are they different problems altogether? No, it's it's pretty much the same. That uh, Let's say a man who like, I got a call this week from a man who's been married for 25 years and he's pouring his heart out to me, but it's always about the same thing. My wife wants to leave me and she said she can't put up with me anymore. She can't endure me. And that's really pretty huge. Let's go back to what I've said. A woman marries looking to a man for safety and security. She wants her heart to be safe with him. Mm. They get married over a period of time. He accidentally sends the message, you're not worth that much. You're not that valuable because he doesn't listen to her. He doesn't respond to her fears. When she shares her heart, he turns it into a defensiveness about himself. And so as time goes on, she feels like she's being slapped emotionally. And then finally, after th six months or maybe after 25 years, she says, I can't bear with this anymore. I'm out of here. And so my goal is to help every man understand why his wife gets hurt so easily by him and what he can do to make his wife's heart feel safe. And that's the simplest way to say it. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, it's explained in the book. Can you explain the difference between companionship and relationship? Sure. Well, men tend to be companionship oriented. In other words, a woman says, I'm going to marry this man. He will be the, the man with whom I can have intimate relationship, the man who will make me feel valuable and significant. And a man says, well, I'm get, uh, accomplishing my goals out here, my tasks and my career, my ministry, my hobbies. I want you as my companion to come with me. And so you've got a woman looking to the man for value and significance and a man looking to his job and those other things for value and significance. And so a woman will feel neglected. My wife said to me just weeks into our marriage, why don't you want me the way I want you? I mean, it's going back a few decades here, but the bottom line was she spoke like so many women, but she needed intimacy, if you will, a relational intimacy. And I was happy just to have companionship with her. I mean, you, you think about it. A, a woman sees her husband come home from work. He comes in the door. And this is how a woman's perspective of true love. He sees her coming in the door. He, he looks at her. He throws down his briefcase or his hammer. And he she sees this as a love. He takes her in his arms and he says, oh, how I've missed you, missed you today. I've thought of you so much. How have the tre children treated you? Do I need to kill any of them? In other words, he, he is speaking to that heart of hers that wants to feel valued or rescued. And so, uh, and then it, he, it's, it gets better. He says to her, why don't, why don't you, I'll finish those last few dishes you were working on. Let me draw for you a bubble bath. Let me hear your heart as you, uh, uh, as you share your light, your day with me, let's put, put the kids in front of the TV. And so to a woman, that sounds wonderful. Yes, I want to feel valued. But to a man, we have a different perspective. See, that's intimacy of relationship. A man walks in, in the door. He's seen as, seen as his wife. 
he, he throws down his briefcase or his hammer, and it stops there. I'm home. You're home. Couldn't get much better than this. Oh, wait. What's for dinner? So that he's content with companionship, but she was looking for relationship. And if a man can understand this, it'll change. I, I know my wife's need for intimacy and relationship. So therefore, whenever I talk to her, it's like I'm flirting with her. I know what her heart needs all day. And that's my next book I'm working on called The Art of Seducing Your Wife. And it's uh, the bottom line is uh, foreplay starts when you get up in the morning, not when you go to bed at night. It's how you speak to her, how you treat her all day long that causes a woman to be stirred and to be desire the marriage bed. This is the first part, isn't it? Because the second part is is the romance part and restoring it. It's one thing at the beginning of a relationship, but later on it seems to dry up. Um, some people like to have perhaps a, an organised time to be away from the kids, perhaps a date night or something like that. But in the process of uh, a relationship breakdown or, or, or that pathway where the split looks like it's happening, does the, 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 the part of romance come into the repairing of the relationship or does that come after you've got the parties backed and talking again? Well, here's what happens. When there's an alienation of relationship, what's gone on is, is like I said, the majority of the time, it's a woman who's pulled away. And she's pulled away because she says, I no longer trust this man. I can't trust him. He, he hurts my feelings, hurts my heart all the time. So therefore, I don't entrust myself to him. And so a man will not regain trust with romance. Uh, flowers and soft music is nice, but that won't that's nice, but it won't regain romance, Ulti or, or rather, it won't restore relationship. What happens is it's got to be trust. And so my experience is if a man wants to restore a broken relationship, to restore trust usually in, means empathy, the ability to look and see how your wife is feeling. Be able to look at her and say, how awful that you felt this way. You, you, you don't deserve that. You deserve this. But yet my neglect has caused you to be wounded, to be lonely and that kind of thing. But romance, as long as you bring it up, if we have a moment here, romance with, with a, your wife, every woman is different. Flowers isn't romance. In other words, let's just say the relationship's good and you want to romance your wife. What really blesses her? You know how, how I flirt with my wife? I clean out the garage. That's it. She likes flowers. But boy, when I clean out that garage, she loves it. I mean, her heart races and I'll never forget the time I, she was on a speaking tour in Alaska, and I was home. I cleaned out the garage with my grandson, and we were at the dump. I took a picture of us at the dump. I said, well, guess where we are? And she said, she texted back, oh, baby, you know what that does to me. That's, <laughs> that's because my wife's hearts, that's how I flirt with her. Well, I, I rescue her from those dragons that threatened and uh, to threaten her, and it just so happens a messy garage is one of those dragons that threatens her. Every woman wants those dragons subdued. Yeah, wonderful perspective there. And uh, the idea that you can just make a contribution uh, on your own actions without being asked or being told, but something that's going to improve the life of your spouse. And it's as simple as that. Now, there may be people that are listening in or watching that are saying, but hang on a second. You talked about being an opponent where your wife was an opponent. How do you sort of dig deeper there and, and move away from this, this position and the psychology behind thinking that your spouse 
house is your opposition. It, it, it seems to be common. It might be the um, uh, the first part before you get that eventual split there. Well, what I try to tell men is that you don't have, if you're trying to, if you, if you see your wife as an opponent to be, then that means you either survive her or control her. That's what we do with opponents. We survive them or they control them. But what if she is a, uh, has a vulnerability about her that needs your strength and needs your protection? And I don't just mean physically, even emotionally. A man must see his wife as one who's got an emotional vulnerability he will offer strength to. And so if I clean out the garage, since I know my wife feels threatened by a messy garage, that romance blesses her. And so as men, we have to understand what it means that our wife is vulnerable and to be protected. My wife is going on and on. I'm thinking, oh, no, why is she bringing this up again? I thought we agreed that we wouldn't go go through all this again. I have to stop myself and say, how can I be a strong protective to her right now? What would that mean? So I stop having to see her as an opponent to be survived or to be conquered, but to be have a to be protected the way I might protect anyone who's vulnerable. It's uh, it's important, uh, and and the nuance again here is 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 the important part for people to recognise, and so to get ahead of the curve if they realise that some sort of issue could come up. Now there may be a man out there saying, "But hang on a second, my wife is domineering." Can you explain uh, the the domineering relationship? in a perspective where it may well be that the that the woman is actually a vulnerable party to this relationship. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so when a woman, my wife who does seminars always puts it this way to women. She says, a woman controls, but she'll control to the level of her fear. And that's her experience with women. And she'll have an entire room full of women, women nodding their head in agreement that they control when they are afraid their husband is not going to do the right job. And so they'll become bossy and domineering because they're afraid the family won't survive him. Finances won't survive him. They get on his case because they're afraid. If a man can see that he needs to be able to be that strong person that'll cause her to rest that she's covered. Many women who are very controlling rest. They don't want the job. My wife at her seminars will say this. She says, "Who? how many women in this room uh, feel like they're in charge of their families? And she says about 95 to 98% of women raise their hands. Yes, I feel like I'm in charge. Then my wife says, okay, who wants the job? And every hand drops. No woman wants it. She, she assumes control because her husband, instead of being behind the, the steering wheel, he's in the back seat with his feet up. And she treats him like he's her oldest son, effectively, because he's not... Uh, assuming responsibility that would lift the weight off of her. That's a profound statement, Reb. I, I'm delighted that you're able to explain it so so beautifully there, that um, that the 98% roughly of women put their hand up and all of them put their hand down. Uh, it, it shows us that uh, men and women are not the same. And even though you can uh, share tasks, et cetera, but there is a fundamental difference and it's 
incredibly important for all of us to understand that. And it's that communication there and uh, that is part of the process, but it's not only what it is. Can I ask you, Rev, if you can just uh, put the book up on the screen so that our viewers can get a look at it? It's called It Turns Out Women Aren't Crazy. There it is, blue cover with a black silhouette there. And uh, I understand that you can purchase that uh, on Amazon if you want to go and have a look and pick that up. It's only 100 pages long, which is really important because it means it's not something that's going to take you hours and hours or days and weeks to read. You get into it and you'll be able to knock it over in, in, in a couple of hours, perhaps sitting at home in an afternoon somewhere where you're realizing, you know what, I'm going to do this for my wife. There's not, no harm in being more informed. Reb, it's, uh, it, it's wonderful that you're able to do that. And thank you for putting that there. Um, is there any last message that you might want to say to uh, to men at the moment to, uh, to encourage them to say, take that first step now? You might, for example, decide that you need to call a counsellor for a problem. Maybe this is the thing that you need to do before you get to that page stage. Well, so far, the men who've read the book or attended one of my seminars, because I, I do seminars on the topic, ultimately say, this changes everything. Now that I understand my wife's heart, I know what she's saying. I know not to be defensive. In other words, it changes everything. And I, uh, I had a man and his wife, they were separated for two weeks. He called me up. He went in counseling. I said, look, you've got to listen to the session because no book was written. I said, listen to the session. I posted it online. He did. And then we got together as a couple. And he had already figured out everything he was doing wrong. His wife was holding him on the arm. She was just so excited to be there. They hardly needed counseling because he finally understood her. And, and bottom line is, it, it's like every man desires intimacy with his wife, physical intimacy. Well, this book is the beginning of... Uh, 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 like I said, it's the begin beginning of foreplay. It's learning how to relate with your wife in a way that she desires you and desires closeness with you. And that's what this book is about. Yeah, look, it's wonderful. And Reb, of course, this isn't the only book that you've written. You've written many. And what we'll do is we'll take a break shortly. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, parenting. And uh, we are living in a world where any parent is realising how difficult it is becoming. And Reb's perspective on it, uh, born liberal, raised right, is going to open up new ideas and thinking how it is that uh, the era for me, I, I, I believe I'm a, the era of the helicopter parent. I, I can recall that my mother used to say the three boys that she gave birth to, I was the eldest. She said I made um, I, I made all my mistakes on my uh, on my first son. I kind of worked it out on my second and my third raised himself to give you an idea. That was how my mum dealt with uh, three boys born in the 1970s here in Australia. And of course, you fast forward to the next generation and a very, very different world we're in uh, all together now. And it will be great to be able to get Reb's perspective uh, after the break. And before we do, at TNT Radio, we never go home. We are committed to bringing you our take on the biggest topics of our time. We broadcast live, as you know, 24-7 online globally, no matter what. We've got you covered on today's News Talk TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off 
and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. See, Smokey thinks I'm funny. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends, and I'm with my guest, Reb Bradley, this hour. And Reb has written many books. Another one is called Born Liberal, Raised Right, How to Rescue America from Moral Decline One Family at a Time. Reb, this is a big deal to take on the uh, the moral decline, to be forthright enough to realise there is one, that the education system that we are told to believe in is failing our children and the, the breaking the barrier, as I put it, of penetrating the family unit and trying to make people dependent on government at a time when the, the, the family unit is the one that's being eroded probably because of government behaviour. How did you get to write this book and, um, and why was it such a big success? Well, I had written a book, Child Training Tips, uh, which has eventually became a bestseller back in the mid-90s. And about 1998, I was listening to a radio talk show host describing the traits of what we call uh, liberals. And I don't know what they are in Australia, but in the U.S., it was clear what liberals were. And he was giving all these traits, and I thought, isn't that interesting? Everything he's saying matches exactly the traits of a poorly trained child, of a child who's grown up with bad training, bad, bad education at home, if you will. And so it became my ambition to uh, write a book drawing the correlation between the two. So the book I came up with, which is Born a Liberal, Raised Right, it was a, uh, it was, it's not a parenting book. It's actually a book for politicians to see how the basics of parenting is the same thing as how you govern a country. And so let me give you an example. <clears throat> Johnny's five years old and his, uh, Parents say, be careful throwing the ball. You might break the window. It, but he's not careful. He breaks the window of the house. And, and they, they look at him and say, well, you don't have the money to 
buy a new window, we'll get another one. And then he's careless again months later and breaks a window again. And so they pay for that window. He's now six years old. They warn him, don't leave your bike outside. Someone will steal it. Well, he leaves his bike outside and sure enough, it gets stolen. And they say, well, now we'll have to buy you a new one. So they buy him a new one. Now he's seven years old. He's playing at a friend's house, a neighbor's house, and he breaks a toy. The parents say, oh, no, now we'll have to buy that child, the neighbor boy, a new bike or a new toy. And so now, now Johnny's 16 years old. He's driving and he gets parking tickets. And then his uh, parents say, that's okay. We'll pay for your parking tickets. We don't want you to have uh, a job to be able to pay for them. So they do. So Johnny grows up. Follow this now. Johnny grows up believing if you love someone, you rescue them from suffering the consequences of their poor choices. And so he therefore says we need to provide clean needles to drug addicts so they don't get diseases um, because of uh, their, their drug use. Oh, we need to provide condoms to the promiscuous so they won't come down with uh, pregnancies or diseases. And so his whole thinking is love says you must rescue people from suffering the consequences of their choices. And that's the core of the book. It shows how the parenting approach you use when children are little and they're young is what determines how they will grow up to vote. And, and ultimately, America is full of entitled teenagers and entitled adults. They're entitled, they're demanding, and it's rooted in how they were parented. I can watch a parent with their child for two minutes and tell you how that child will grow up to vote. It's really simple just to watch. And I've never been wrong because I've been alive long enough to watch that happen. When I, and I say there's going to be trouble there. So that, that's what the book is about. It simply shows the, the worldview that's created by the parenting style used by parents. And uh, it's not just blamed on the schools. It really is a lot on how parents parented their children. Again, another profound statement, Reb, and this is something that, that, that comes from some time ago, and you've been able to uh, to witness uh, over decades uh, these kids growing up. Where is the difference, therefore, in the parenting style? Is it learnt by the parents or is it something that is built in? For example, I, I was just remembering my, my late mother the other day, and she would say to us as kids, you get what you're given, and that was a response to us asking, as she would say, nagging for something. These days, you know, kids will, uh, will, will ask for something, you know, can I get this? Can I get that? And you see uh, parents backing down and, and giving in for something like that, whether it be snack food or or, or a sweet or something else. Uh, and I've noticed that there's a little bit of a difference and they call it pester power as one of these things. But when mum would say, you get what you give, and it was kind of like, okay, well, that's it. That's the end of the argument. Um, is there a comparison, therefore, between different types of parenting, or is it something that happens over years and years? Because clearly there is a there is a political divide, and not everyone goes down the pathway of uh, of raising their children to all become uh, a liberal or, or shall we say, uh, left wing. Well, there's a, a verse in the Bible that says that you reach maturity by enduring suffering. Suffering is what creates maturity. And so you see it with athletes. Um, athletes challenge themselves more and more to be, get better. They are stronger. They're more capable. They're more skilled. They take on greater opponents. And so in life, if we rescue our children, for example, from suffering through broccoli or suffering through chores and suffering, this is what I'm calling suffering, I would quote unquote, but yet many parents these days will say, I don't want to make them eat something they don't want. And so the child grows up 
without the ability to endure challenges and suffering. And so that's what's happened in America. I'm, I'm guessing things are probably similar, but it started back in the early 60s. In 1946 or five, I can't remember which it was, uh, Dr. Spock, Dr. Benjamin Spock wrote a book that became very popular. And within 15 years, America had transformed. Millions of copies were sold. And basically he says, cater to your children's preferences. That's the simplest way to put it. It used to be, I will teach my children to uh, suffer through the challenges. I'll give them chores, I'll learn to work hard. But he was saying, uh, how, how, how is it? Ultimately, he didn't use these words, but it was cater to your children's preferences. Don't make them suffer through those things. And as a result, parents no longer knew how to parent. They weren't sure how to do it anymore. And people became insecure and they became afraid. If I don't make my child happy, they won't like me. And so parents are now, I'll speak now, let alone since 1960, parents these days are very intimidated and insecure. I, I want my kids to like me. And if I make them unhappy, they won't like me. So what does that take? So we end up with parents intimidated by their children. And so right now, the world is full. The, the laws are created to accommodate spoiled children. Spoiled means ruined. I've had a, I was interviewed a talk, by a talk show host once, and he says, but you can't help to spoil your kids a little. And I say, but the word spoil means to ruin. What, what, what do you mean? You want to ruin them a little. It, it's, it's children learn to be mature by facing challenges in their life. I mean, there's so much more to it than that, but that's the simplest beginning I can offer. I, I appreciate that. Um, what happens uh, when parents are now dealing with rebellious teenagers? Is it too late to be able to become a good parent or have the sh has the ship sailed? Well, it's a challenge. If you, if you, I have a parenting series called Parenting Teens with the Wisdom of Solomon. But, and the premise of it is, here's how to turn it around. The bottom line typically is, that life will hit them hard at some point. Life will hit them hard, meaning that they're going to be held accountable. They'll be fired. They won't get a job. They'll get tickets. And you must prepare them for that. And yes, um, teen years, you can still do it. You apologize. You meet with your 12 or 13-year-old and say, look, I have uh, made a mistake. I didn't prepare you for the challenges of life. I'm correcting that now. And so... From now on, here are rules, here's consequences. So that's necessary. But here's what's really important. It's teenagers are most influenced by relationship. They must love you and respect you. And that's the goal is to have a relationship where your children grow to respect you. You're a man of your word. You, you speak and things happen. But you also are loving them. And so uh, what I find is many parents, if they're in teen years, only know to threaten with consequences. They will only say things like, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. If you're going to do this, you're going to lose this privilege. And so they motiv motivate with threat of consequence rather than like Solomon did to his sons, appeal to them like they're young adults and say, here are goals, here are your goals, and you will not achieve those goals if you make bad choices. Now, just what? on the just on the goals there, Reb, do the children uh, setting the goals or are they working in conjunction with parents to set goals? So the goal setting process, for example, is also taught. Well, yeah, I, I, the goal is to start when they're very young 
and elevate your children, what is important. Um, but the bottom line is Solomon warned his sons. He said, if you hang out with an angry man, you're going to learn his ways. And so do you want to be an angry person? You're going to learn if you hang out with him. He said, all right, if you go, go around loose women who are aggressive, you'll be seduced. And if that's what you want, that's going to happen. But if you value something, Here's how it ha happened in my home. I didn't understand this. In my parenting book, uh, I it's called uh, Child Training Tips, What I Wish I Knew When My Children Were Young. And it's all the things that I wish I knew. It's been updated 10 times at least because I learned more lessons and more lessons. But my oldest son, who, who's a policeman or was for years, but he's 44 years old. And when he was 18, he wanted to go to a movie. And I said, no, you can't go to that movie. It's got bad stuff in it. That's on our no watch list. And he was bummed. He was sad, you know. But I shouldn't have been controlling him. And so I understood that by the time his little brother was 17, his little brother said, I want to go see such and such a movie. And I said, well, for a guy who wants to walk in purity, that's going to be difficult because there's a lot of sex scenes and nudity. And he said, well, I don't want to see it then. You see, I appealed to his values. I didn't say you're forbidden. I let him make his choice like he's a young man. But I just warned him. And, and, and that's the difference between simply crushing your kids with the rules and appealing to them based on the values that you believe they have. That is a remarkable difference, isn't it? And yet so simple. It's almost being able to present real choices uh, the way that you did there. And, and so constantly as a parent, it's more than just a reaction, isn't it? It's like there's there's a planning process and an understanding, but it's also a blueprint to understand the difference in this parenting process. Uh, so like anything, it requires um, a work and instruction, perhaps, uh, and the ability to want to learn to be able to do it better. And of course, any parent that has an argument or a fight with their children regrets it almost immediately and wonders how they can uh, uh, resurrect the, uh, the the relationship to if it has been damaged, whether it be permanently or or, or, or partially. And it's a big deal. Um, and I guess it would be also uh, embarrassment and shame would be part of a, of parenting where, where, where particularly in dad's cases, realising if, if a relationship is broken and there's a divorce and they move away from their children, how it is that they can get back into their children's lives and still have meaning just because mum and dad don't love each other anymore doesn't mean they don't love their children, Rem. Right, right. And uh, it's the best to invest well in advance for that. I, I did a lot of repair parenting myself. My oldest three kids, I parented them horribly during the teen years. I was very controlling, very domineering. I didn't respect them. And by the time they were in their 20s, I had to have coffee with them and apologize and, and say to them, so you see, we're raising your little brothers and sisters differently and they yes we're glad to see that but there's a lot of repair work it took with my adult children because i was overbearing and controlling and domineering when i treated them like they were young children when they were teenagers isn't it amazing, Reb, that uh, you can go on and write books and counsel and uh, and be able to uh, improve your own life and in the process improve thousands and thousands of others, but also to be able to be vulnerable yourself and admit the the, the ultimate sin for any parent to think that they that they are faultless. And, and here you are saying, no, I was one of these people that was making the same mistakes. How does that make you feel as a human being that you have the ability to knowledge, therefore, and improve yourself. And, and, and in the same process, it becomes your whole life. 
Well, it takes pressure when you stop pretending to be something because there's a lot of pressure. And I used to feel it when my when I was in the controlling years with my teenage children. I want everybody to think they're perfect. I pressured them. Don't act up in front. of. I was traveling and speaking the world and my children, one or two of them would be with me handling my book table. And I would just behave yourself. Don't don't embarrass me. You know, and I just think I look back and just regret that. Because it required pretending that I had my act together, that I was perfect. And, you know, what pressure is relieved when we can say, I haven't done it right. I've made mistakes. It's my wish that all people could be willing to say, I want to own my mistakes. I want to hold myself responsible for how my kids have turned out or to some degree. Uh, my kids are all adults. They've all made their own choices. Now, I'm not responsible for their choices, but I still know my mistakes made them wrestle with things that they might not have wrestled with otherwise. There's two questions I want to get out in our last couple of minutes together. Uh, are bad habits as well as good habits learned from our parents? For example, if mum or dad was alcoholic uh, and it go and, and it passes down to the children, but equally that we can learn from the good habits of our parents? I, I don't see uh, the alcoholism as a habit. I see that as a, uh, a DNA propensity. We all have a tendency to sin in some area, to fail. Alcohol is not a temptation for me, but one of my kids it is. And yet didn't inherit it from me, didn't inherit it from their mom, but it was something he wrestled with, alcohol. And it, so we all have, I mean, it might be food, it, you name it. So as far as habits go, yes, uh, uh, overeating habit, yeah, that could be, you could, if you stop by a snack store or, or a, a quick, a quick stop, a 7-Eleven, as we call them here, and pick up a snack every time you're out, you are teaching your children to, to snack constantly. You may, they may put on weight because of the habits you've established with them as a parent. If you, if you are uh, constantly criticizing leaders in the country or in church or someplace else, your children learn not to respect those who are in authority, but to put them down. So, yes, we model by our bad examples thing. We also model good things and i'm very thankful my my six kids i uh we you know we have six in the first three we were we stopped having kids for seven years i had a vasectomy actually then we adopted a child at a reversal we had two more of our own but all this to say the first three we call our experiments because we we did the best we could but the last three were raised so differently and uh but I, I just tell you, when I think about my my kids and what they went through, I wish I'd understood so many things so differently. And I'm sorry, I went away. I didn't finish answering your question, if you want to re-ask it. No, no, I, I'm glad that uh, you were able to explain where we were going there, because I think the other most important part is that uh, when we fail as parents, uh, one of the hardest things is that uh, we can be too hard on ourselves and punish ourselves. And I don't think that serves anyone, but it's the guilt involved with making that mistake. And it comes back again as men, particularly how we, we uh, resurrect that. And I've only got about 30 seconds. All right. Well, what I had started to say is I'm thankful that my kids learned good things from me and my wife. 
I'm thankful. My three sons have all started a nonprofit organization, each different ones, because they think we're here to make a difference in this world. And I'm, I'm thankful that they got that much, at least despite my mistakes. Yeah, how beautifully put, Reb. It's been a, an absolute delight and a privilege to be able to share an hour of your time with us here on TNT Radio for the most important part of all of our lives, maintaining relationships. And if you're lucky enough to meet the love of your life, to maintain that marriage through the thick and the thin and learn to be a better man in a relationship. And as it says on Reb's T-shirt there, it turns out women aren't crazy. And for just 100 pages, you can learn all about the tricks of the trade, so to speak, and also with a born uh, liberal raised right. What a delight to be able to uh, look at all of that. Thank you, Reb, for that. Check out the books on Amazon. Reb Bradley was my guest. We're going to take a break for news headlines and a brand new guest after the break here on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT Radio.